Chapter Nine of Sixteenth Century Bristol by John Latimer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. A perambulation of the city boundaries took place in September, fifteen eighty four. A breakfast for the mayor and sheriffs, consisting of seven quarts of wine and two pennyworth of cakes, was the first feature of the proceedings after the shire stones had been all duly visited an afternoon drinking disposed of a gallon of maratha mentioned for the first time and costing fourpence per pint the only other charge was one shillings four dimes paid to labourers to make the ways open the audit book for fifteen eighty five had not been preserved and we are consequently deprived of precise information respecting the distress caused by the remarkable dearth of that year during which wheat rose to the famine price of a hundred and ten shillings per quarter the corporation adopted vigorous measures for the relief of the poor importing four thousand bushels of rye from danzink and more than one thousand bushels of english grain all of which was retailed at about cost price country bakers were also encouraged to bring in supplies of bread and although there appears to have been some rioting order was generally maintained an attempt to ship off a quantity of butter consigned to france was promptly defeated by the mayor who proceeded with a body of officers to hung road boarded the vessel and brought away the cargo which was sold in the market at two and a half dimes per pound whilst the sailors who had attempted to resist the seizure were fined for the offence and lodged in prison until they paid the money the dearth continued in fifteen eighty six but the government rejected the corporation's appeal for permission to import foreign grain the strained relations of the government with king philip of spain and the unquestionable design of that monarch to attempt the conquest of england led to an outburst of military enthusiasm throughout the country in the closing months of fifteen eighty five in november the common council ordered a new ancient or banner for the trained bands which were mustered in college green and in the following month all the able-bodied inhabitants were summoned by drums and fifes which the chamberlain sometimes called pipes and sometimes fifties to attend a general muster at adercliffe now redcliffe parade to choose their corporals these gatherings were preliminary a grand inspection in march fifteen eighty six by the earl of pembroke who had been appointed lord lieutenant of bristol and somerset the earl who arrived with a guard of thirty-two horsemen was received with many demonstrations of respect a large body of citizens in arms were waiting and thirty-two cannon fired a salute whilst he was welcomed by the authorities the mansion of elderman kitchen in small street had been prepared for his reception and every available delicacy was provided for his entertainment a pavilion was also erected in the marsh for his use during the inspection finally before his departure on the following day he was feasted at a magnificent breakfast and an immense present of sugar and sweetmeats 
including two costly boxes of marmalade one decorated with the arms of the queen and the other with his own was offered for his acceptance his visit cost the corporation nearly one hundred pounds but in despite of the hospitality and tokens of respect the earl's pikery at being refused the office of lord high steward appears to have been still allayed and his arrogance in ignoring the mayor's right of precedence in the city by taking the upper hand of his chief host gave so much offence that it was represented to the queen who according to a local analyst rebuked him for his presumption and committed him to the tower until he paid a fine for the offence the trained bands were mustered again in july when a picture of a man was set up in the marsh for gun practice and a third muster took place in september the corporation did not bear any grudge against lord pembroke for his discourtesy as in the following year when there were pirates in the seven they equipped an armed pinnace to convey a barge laden with his goods from bristol to his residence at cardiff but about the same time on an appeal from the civic body the government appointed the mayor deputy lieutenant for the city thus avoiding future collisions john carr a bristolian whose name is ever held to be in honour as the founder of queen elizabeth's hospital died in june fifteen ninety six aged about fifty two years mr carr was the eldest son of alderman william carr a prosperous merchant and member of parliament for the city from fifteen fifty nine to fifteen sixty seven who was himself a local benefactor the alderman purchased in fifteen sixty two for three thousand five hundred pounds the reversion in fee of the manor of congressbury and wick st lawrence comprising about five thousand acres of land subject to the life interest of a lady who survived him but two thousand pounds of the consideration remained unpaid at his death when the net yearly value of the estate was estimated by an audacious jury at only fifty four pounds although somewhat less than half the manor now belongs to the hospital the annual receipts exceed four thousand five hundred pounds john carr on coming into possession paid off the remainder of the purchase money he was already an extensive soap maker having works not only in bristol but at bow near london and made a discovery in his business which brought him large returns he refers to this subject in his will executed in april fifteen eighty six as follows whereas i have committed in trust to my servant john dinay the trade of white soap making a thing by me found out and put in use here in england and goes on to specify the manner in which the secret was to be confided first to his widow who was to have the profits for ten years and afterwards to his relative simon aldworth carr though living in baldwin street probably spent much of his time at his factory near london for he had evidently paid much attention to christ's hospital then a new institution and resolved on founding a school of a similar character 
his will accordingly directed that after the payment of a number of legacies and the liquidation of certain mortgages and other debts which he anticipated would occupy five years his executors should transfer his estate in somerset and most of his house property in bristol to the corporation in trust to found a hospital or place for bringing up poor children and orphans being men children born of indignant or decayed parents in bristol or on his estates the system of governing which was to be modelled upon that in operation at christ's hospital the testator trusted that the corporation would erect a suitable building for this hospital of which he made them patrons guiders and governors forever the validity of mr carr's will was disputed by his younger brother the owner of the woodspring priory estate but he withdrew his opposition on payment of one thousand pounds and on being released of a debt of six hundred and sixty six pounds due to his brother's estate the corporation displayed a great earnestness in carrying out mr carr's intentions and hurried forward the period he had fixed for establishing the school by the payment of legacies etc having effected their purpose within four years of his death they obtained a charter from queen elizabeth which after reciting that they had bestowed some thousands of pounds for more quickly hastening carr's pious object constituted the mayor and common council a distinct incorporation for the perpetual government of the charity and relieved them from the restrictions of the statutes of mortmain under which carr's bequest was invalid the applicants had doubtless flattered the queen by beseeching her to become the patron of the intended institution for the charter further directs that it shall be for ever styled the hospital of queen elizabeth the corporation next resolved on granting to the school in perpetuity the mansion of the suppressed monastery of the gaunts and the adjoining orchard the school was opened in the summer of fifteen ninety when twelve boys were admitted in fifteen ninety seven in consequence of a bequest by one anthony standbank of several houses in the city in trust for the hospital the corporation obtained an act of parliament confirming the queen's charter and legalizing the acceptance of standbank's estate the subsequent history of the corporate dealings with the school have been published in the annuals of bristol in the seventeenth eighteenth and nineteenth centuries the christmas week of fifteen eighty six is marked by two sadly significant entries in the chamberlain's accounts the first reads paid a perseverant for bringing down the proclamation concerning the treason done by the queen of scots which proclamation was proclaimed on st stephen's day thirteen shillings four dimes as no one in those days escaped death when charged with treason by the government the next item is still more significant paid for wood for and making a bonfire at the high cross when the proclamation was made three shillings four dimes the unfortunate queen was executed on february the eighth after being much tormented by adjurators to forswear her faith on the part of richard fletcher 
the servile and stony-hearted dean of peterborough this man was appointed bishop of bristol in 1590 for his services in this tragedy and on condition of his granting the estates of the c2 courtiers which he did so extensively that he left little to his successors he is said to have died from immoderated indulgence in tobacco the minutes of the privy council acquaint us with an incident which must have occasioned an extraordinary sensation in bristol yet which the local chroniclers whilst carefully noting many trivialities chose to utterly ignore it appears that in the spring of fifteen eighty six when the office of mayor was held by richard cole a wealthy and widely esteemed merchant allied by marriage with two notable city families the smythes and the cars the lord of the manor of thornbury lord stafford claimed a right to seize the person and property of the chief magistrate and of his brother thomas also a merchant alleging that they were both villains appurtenant to his manor and that he was as free to deal with them as with his cattle his lordship having threatened to use personal violence for attaining his ends the brothers appealed for protection to the government and on june the nineteenth the privy council addressed a letter to stafford offering him to forbear from arresting or molesting them and from disturbing them in their trade seeing that they were prepared to answer his claim in the law courts it was added that the principal officer of such a place and his brother having been both themselves and their ancestors always reputed freemen should not be so hardly dealt with upon any supposition and lord stafford was commanded to proceed no further until he had acquainted the privy council with the grounds of his pretensions his lordship does not appear to have paid much regard to these instructions for another letter was sent down to him in july when the government had been informed that he had used violence and threats towards two countrymen contending that they were his bondsmen and he was again forbidden to resort to force until he had legally proved his alleged rights the mandate seems to have been dealt with as contemptuously as was its forerunner nearly a year later may the seventh fifteen eighty seven the privy council addressed him again pointing out that although he had raised no action at law against the coles and had refused to answer their suit against him yet he had again violently attempted to seize them and that they had been consequently forced to forbear from following their business such conduct was a breach of the queen's peace and he was summoned to appear before the council to justify his conduct it seems clear that he was still refractory for on november the fifteenth the council ordered that the continued complaints of the coles and the claim of their persecutors should be heard and determined on december the fifth by the lord chancellor and two other judges as there is no further reference to the case the arrogant peer was doubtless defeated the most amazing fact in reference to the subject is that the corporation apparently paid no effort to defend the privileges of the city alderman richard cole died in 1599 in his will which disposed of every extensive property in bristol and somerset 
he bequeathed £30 to repair the road to Gloucester, near Newport, where I was born. His widow, Alice, sister of John Carr, founder of Queen Elizabeth's Hospital, was a large benefactor to local charities, and the funds bequeathed by her are still administered by trustees. The corporation in December 1586 increased the stipend of the town clerk from £4 to £10 per annum. This amount, however, inadequately indicates the real official income, which was largely derived from fees. For some unexplained reason, the civic body at this period experienced considerable difficulty in finding a well-to-do member disposed to take the office of mayor. In the audit book for 1585 to 1586 are the following entries. Receive of Alderman Brown, together with 11 pieces of ordinance, in consideration of being exempted forever from the office of morality, £20. Received of Thomas Colston for the same consideration, £20. It is somewhat remarkable that by much the largest fine paid for similar redemption does not appear in the accounts. Two years later, when the Common Council made one of its numerous but always unsuccessful attempts to reap a profit out of the House of Correction by setting the inmates to work, proposing on this occasion that the prisoners should dye and dress cloth, a stock of fifty pounds was advanced to the keeper, which the Chamberlain notes was part of the money given by William Young, merchant in Mr. Cole's year, 1585 to 1586, to be discharged forever of the office of mayor. Nothing more is recorded respecting the dyeing industry, and in 1597 the Chamberlain paid four pounds for an iron mill for the House of Convection, the purpose of which is not explained. About the date of the execution of the Queen of Scots, the city authorities were thrown into a panic. The Chamberlain records, 1587, February, paid to sundry persons who carried precepts of hue and cry to sundry places when the report was given that London was fired, and that armour should be in readiness three shillings six dimes. The alarming incident is not mentioned by the local chroniclers. An illustration of the Earl of Leicester's cool methods of procedure occurred in the same month. The corporation paid £42 for three bucks of sack, which were ordered to be sent to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Treasurer, Burghley and Leicester, in hope of the continuance of their goodwill and favour to the city. As Lord Leicester was about to visit Bath, the butt intended for him seems to have been retained until his arrival. The two others were forwarded to London by a wainsman at a cost of four pounds, but on their reaching the capital, a servant of Leicester, by his direction, tapped one of the huge pieces and abstracted between three and four gallons of wine, which the troubled Chamberlain had to supply by purchase before making the presentation. In addition to the above gifts, the corporation shortly afterwards sent a piece of plate to Sir James Croft, 
a member of the Privy Council, who had presumably taken umbrage at being unrewarded, and it was also deemed prudent to forward a rug coverlet, costing two pounds ten shillings, to the Lord's Treasurer, Private Secretary, to keep him also in a good humour. An account by a contemporary analyst of a fatal conflict in King Road in July 1587 incidentally throws some light upon a profitable traffic of Bristol merchants, which developed largely in the following century. The exportation overseas of hides and skins was then forbidden by statute. Nevertheless, some prominent local merchants had, by a judicious offer of ready money, and by undertaking to surrender a share of their yearly profits, induced the avaricious queen to override the law of the land by granting them a license to export calf skins, a material in much demand on the continent, for conversion into slim shoe leather. Agents were accordingly employed in South Wales and the adjoining counties to buy up the skins, but it may be presumed that the prices given were considered inadequate, and that the exclusive privilege of the Bristolians was regarded as unjust. At all events, one Edward Whitson, a tanner in the forest of Dean, in concert with his neighbours, loaded a barge boat in the Wye near Tinton, which calf skins in the hope of smuggling the cargo on board a French ship lying in King Road. It is probable that this is by no means the first effort made to evade the licenses, and that they had employed spies to give information, for knowledge of Whitson's design had reached the city before the departure of his boat. Mr. Thomas James, afterwards MP, and some other merchants interested in the business thereupon resolved on capturing the cargo by main force, and having armed themselves for the purpose, went down in a pinnace to await the smugglers. The latter, clearly foreseeing a collision, were provided with pikes, bows and arrows, targets and leather coats. According to the local chronicler, the forest men were the first to commence hostilities, and having wounded one of the Bristol crew with an arrow, someone believed to be Mr. James, retaliated by firing a musket, by which one Gitton, the owner of the other boat, was killed. Nothing is said respecting the fate of the smuggled skins, and the subsequent proceedings are involved in some obscurity. A local animist says that Mr. James was tried for manslaughter in the Admiralty Court in London, as the forest men, for conceivable reasons, did not attend to give evidence. He was acquitted. James must afterwards have appealed to the government, for the Privy Council in the first place commanded his co-partners in the calfskin license to pay a proportionate share of his expenses which they had previously refused to do, and then, April 1588, ordered by the mayor and aldermen to summon the sheriffs of Bristol of the previous year to make restitution of the money and goods that they had taken from James as a composition. For Gitton's death, the justices were further directed to require Christopher's Whitsons, a merchant, to give bond in £1,000 
for his appearance in the following term to answer charges that would be brought against him by the crown james had probably alleged that whitson had acted in collusion with his namesake in the forest notwithstanding this mandate the sheriffs refused to surrender the confiscated property and the privy council had to content themselves with directing the mayor to settle the dispute as he thought fit but whitson was arrested in november fifteen eighty eight and lodged in the fleet prison on no specified charge and there he remained for upwards of two years in december fifteen ninety he appealed for release to the privy council who by that time had totally forgotten why he was apprehended they now admitted that his case was grievous and asked the lord chief baron for an explanation his lordship replied that he knew nothing about the case but that whitson had been detained upon the often an earnest motion of attorney-general popham doubtless a friend of james whitson afterwards became prosperous and served the office of mayor End of chapter nine